0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with Yi Sun, co-founder of Axiom, and Daniel Kong, associate professor of computer science at UIUC. We talk about their academic background and what led them to get interested in ZK Topics and ZKML. We then dig into two recent works of theirs entitled Trustless Verification of Machine Learning and ZKIMG Fighting Deepfakes with Zero Knowledge Proofs. This episode is all about ZKML, which is a lot of fun to dive into. It's a new field for me, and I really like looking at how it's starting to intersect with the zero-knowledge tech that we talk about on the show. So yeah, let me know if you like it and if you want to hear more eps like this. Now, before we kick off, I just want to let you know about an upcoming event we're doing. This is the ZK Hack Lisbon event. It's an in-person hackathon happening in Lisbon the weekend before ZK Summit 9. That's March 31st to April 2nd. If you're already coming to the summit, this might be interesting for you. This is an event for developers and builders who've already built something in ZK or really looking to jump in. If this sounds like you, do send off an application. I'll add that to the show notes, and we hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash, and the scalability of a rollup. If you're interested in building private applications, then check out Alio's programming language called Leo. Leo enables non-cryptographers to harness the power of ZKPs to deploy decentralized exchanges, hidden information games, regulated stable coins, and more. Visit developer.aleo.org to learn more. You can also participate in Alio's incentivized Testnet 3 by downloading and running a Snark OS node. No sign up is necessary to participate. For questions, join their Discord at alio.org forward slash Discord. So thanks again, Alio. And now here's our episode. Today, Tarun and I are here with Yi Sun, co-founder of Axiom, and Daniel Kang, assistant professor of computer science at UIUC. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So yeah, I think as a starting point, it would be really great to get to know both of you. Yi, why don't we start with you? Tell me a little bit about your research and the work that has led you to ZK and now your work on Axiom.
1: Yeah, so I recently took a leave from a statistics professorship at the University of Chicago, uh, where I was doing work on probability and machine learning uh, to start Axiom, which is a new ZK project. His goal is to bring the power of ZK to smart contract developers. Uh, So I got interested in crypto actually quite a few years back around 2017. So I just finished a PhD in math from MIT where I spent a year doing high-frequency trading in the middle. And so crypto to me just seemed like the perfect combination of markets and cryptography. Uh, Back then, I quickly got pretty interested in the consensus protocols and what can enable crypto to really become something scalable. And ZK always seemed like the holy grail for that. But at that time, it did seem pretty much like moon math. Mm -hmm. So the procedure for starting anything in zero knowledge would be Number one, you you roll your own crypto and invent your own zero knowledge protocol. Yeah. Then maybe that takes you a year. Number two, you actually implement that in software. Maybe that takes another year. And two years in, you get to really start working on your actual application or infrastructure tool.
0: And at some point, you also have to build your own ZK DSL, probably along the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, step three complete the (laughs) trifecta. Uh, Perfect. So uh, I kept following the space. Uh, helping out a couple early stage projects uh, like Gauntlet and Scroll. And in late 2021, I realized that the ZK space had really matured. And in particular, the tooling was ready to start building applications straight away. Uh, So I got pretty interested and sucked back in. And I spent early 2022 working on a bunch of open source work to write uh, various primitives in ZK. So I worked on some libraries for elliptic curve cryptography and also reading from Ethereum data structures uh, in ZK. So, over the summer, I realized that that work could be actually really scaled up by porting it to a more performant uh, proof system called Halo 2. And that's when I realized that something like Axiom was even possible to build mm. and decided to work more seriously on it. So, We just launched last week and we're excited to see what we can do.
0: Nice. So, are you saying though that like your first true foray into the blockchain space was actually ZK? Like you had been kind of observing it before that. But yeah, was that your first step in to actually build?
1: Yeah, definitely. I've been sort of poking around the space for quite a while, as Therun can probably tell you. Uh, But ZK was the first thing where I felt like my technical skills could be a good fit for what's needed in the space. Cool. And I think ZK is kind of the perfect mashup of, you know, you need to know some math, but you also have to make a performant production system.
0: What kind of professor were you, or what department were you in before? Was it computer science or was it math?
1: Yeah, I was actually in the statistics department. Oh, yeah. And people always ask this, but my previous research has very little to do with cryptocurrency or even ZK. So I was working on these theoretical problems in probability that originate in statistical mechanics. And also trying to make some connections between those problems and uh, modern machine learning. Cool. So working on some theoretical deep learning.
0: Nice. All right. I know we're going to come back to the topic of machine learning and more on the ZK front. But Daniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your research has been all about and what got you excited about ZK stuff?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, this my foray into crypto actually started way back in, I think, almost 2011 or 2012. It was almost a failed story. Um back then I knew this uh, Eastern European uh, hacker uh, whose name I don't actually know. And he told me that I should work on this thing called Bitcoin mining um, and it would change my life. Uh, And it sounded like a humongous scam. Um, At this point in time, I was uh, in high school, I was really into assembly coding. He told me I should optimize assembly miners. Obviously, I did not do this um, (laughs) since uh, I clearly make bad decisions in my life. Uh, I learned later that the group that he Referred me to um, was mining so uh, profitably on AWS that they crashed AWS, uh, oh. I think in around 2013. Um, but since then, I've decided that I should keep an open mind. And if people tell me that they're interesting things, I should uh, at least pay attention. And interestingly enough, um, Yi has been telling me for years that there's this uh, thing called ZK. Um, and when I first heard about it, it literally sounds like magic, it literally sounds like something that shouldn't exist. Uh, So I was a bit skeptical, but I kept an open mind. Um, But at that point in time, this is, I think, maybe 20, I don't remember the exact year, 2018 to 2020 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing my PhD at Stanford, where I focused on deploying machine learning in a variety of different uh, applications, but primarily for analytics. And one of the trends I noticed um, when I started my PhD was around 2017. When I first got involved with machine learning and statistics, it was around 2013, 2014, it really went from people being able to deploy their own models to literally all the models that you are that you hear about nowadays are basically uh, gated behind APIs. So, for mm. example, OpenAI's ChatGPT, um, Google has announced some as well, uh, and a variety of other models uh, like this. And one of the things that I've been wondering about for a long time is that uh, as an academic, um, and especially as these models are proliferating, what are some ways to actually influence what's going on? And one really basic question is that if a model is behind an API, how do you actually know what's running? Yeah. Um, And to me, like this problem literally sounded impossible. So I just, I thought about this and I was like, all right, well, I guess this isn't happening, but I would really like to know what, uh, what I'm being served. And then after several months of cajoling, Yi uh, convinced me to start working on this space and... I noticed the same thing that the tooling was actually it was actually feasible to uh, start to deploy applications today uh, and I got really excited about that um, and I, I dived right into it and I've been working this space I guess for about half a year to year at this point and it's been a lot of fun so uh, uh, that's how I got involved with uh, with zkml
0: cool. you've produced papers together, right you've written you've done research together. How does that collaboration work? Is it sort of like someone has an idea and then you just want to dive into it or is this like officially within your working purview? Yeah, how, how does that work?
1: Yeah, we've actually been working together for a pretty long time. I first met Daniel actually through one of our mutual friends who is my roommate in grad school. His name is uh, Tatsunori Hashimoto, and he's now a professor of computer science at Stanford. And so it's actually through that context, we just became friends and started working on machine learning together in, it's a long time ago, I think maybe 2017. So we started working on adversarial examples in deep learning. It was really one of the first exposures that honestly both of us had had to machine learning and especially empirical machine learning. So we wrote a paper together about trying to defend against different forms of these exotic adversarial attacks on vision models. So what that means is you can tweak the input to one of your machine learning classifiers and it's a non-trivial result that it's possible to fool almost all deep learning models today. Mm. And one of the biggest puzzles in the space is whether you can design a model to prevent this from happening. Unfortunately, our, our work did not make that much progress on that. We essentially showed that this is a very hard problem. And several ways
3: of doing it don't really work. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, for, for listeners who've listened to a lot, episode 246 was about this topic Florian, who does a lot of, like, in-the-wild attacks against systems people claim are adversarially resistant but then turn out not to be. Yeah, we definitely read a lot of Florian's papers. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So I want to talk about one paper that the two of you were authors on. And I know I've seen the blog post, which is entitled Trustless Verification of Machine Learning. I want to explore a little bit how that work came to be. I think it ties into what you just said, Daniel, about kind of the problem space and yeah, what, what were you trying to solve or figure out with that work? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about it.
1: Yeah, I can maybe jump in with a bit of the backstory. So at the beginning of that work, I guess I'd been working on ZK for a while and thinking about how to really scale up ZK proofs for things outside of machine learning. Very basic data structures appearing in Ethereum and elliptic curve operations. And when I thought about what really went into that work, it's a lot of low-level optimization as well as understanding from a ground level the computation you're trying to do. But there was some people in the space thinking about applying this to machine learning. And I immediately realized that Daniel would almost be the perfect person to work on this. So that's why I thought of him to even try to really control him to get into the space. <laughs> and the, the goal of that work was to really scale up uh, ZK machine learning models for the first time. And I thought Daniel's the perfect person to make that happen.
2: That's very flattering. Uh, and as you were saying, uh, one of the things that actually turns out to be really important in uh, machine learning in particular for ZK is how you represent computations. And going back to my story about assembly hacking in high school, it turns out a lot of the skills uh, almost directly uh, poured over to, to ZKML.
0: Hmm. What's the actual problem, though, that this, like, introducing, let's even take a step back into like ZKML, like what problem is it trying to solve?
2: Yeah, so ZKML tries to solve an abstract problem of which there are many specific concrete instantiations, um, but the abstract problem is to produce a zero-knowledge proof that a machine learning model ran on some input, and this inherits all the nice properties of zero-knowledge proofs, uh, and in particular, we focus on ZK snarks. so things like succinctness, uh, zero-knowledge, obviously, and the completeness properties and soundness properties of zero-knowledge proofs.
0: Is this sort of like going back to what you were saying about a lot of these models being created or like a lot of the activities happening behind an API? Is this an attempt to sort of prove, even if it's behind an API, that it's being done correctly?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one of the concrete instantiations of the ZKML problem. So, for example, an ML provider might uh, have some model weights that they want to keep hidden. Uh, And so when you send them, uh, let's say, an image uh, or a piece of text... You can then use uh, th- the techniques from zkML, or the API provider can use the techniques from zkML, G- to then prove that they've ran the model that they said they ran uh, uh, honestly.
0: Why would they not like? What benefit is there in not doing that right? Like, is there something malicious or something to be gained?
2: Yeah. So I think it depends on who you talk to. Um, if you talk to people, okay. So I guess maybe the 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 most uh, realistic application of this, I think, is that. Um, the cloud provider or API provider might have been hacked. Okay. So, for example, if you're serving medical predictions, and there might be some uh, malicious actors who want to say serve uh, incorrect medical predictions for very specific reasons, say state actors. And in this circumstance, um, you can, if you send the proof, then you know that uh, the the models run, run correctly. But beyond that, there might be bugs in the serving system, so you might trust the model provider to actually. Uh, do what they're, or try to do what they're saying uh, they want to do, Um, but they might have a, a, say, like a version mismatch, and they might send you predictions from the wrong uh, version of the model. And finally, if you're dealing with a trustless setting, uh, the model provider might might just be lazy. It's quite expensive to run ML models, and if you can just avoid running them, say, by running a smaller model, uh, they might do that.
0: Like just give you lazy data, like still output something, but not on on sort of the the sophisticated level that they had promised or something.
2: Yeah. So concretely, if you think about OpenAI, they have a model called GPT-3 and a variety of different forms of it. And they have smaller versions of that model, for example, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: GPT-2. And so they might run GPT-2 on your input um, if they are, for whatever reason, feeling lazy. Um, And you you might trust OpenAI in particular, but if you say you want to outsource your computation to... Um, say, a startup that uh, might not be as proven, then you still might want to have these kind of guarantees that you get from zero-knowledge proofs.
1: I think it's particularly challenging in areas where, as a human, you actually can't evaluate the model output. Mm. Um, for example, if the model is just evaluating the classifying images, saying whether something is a cat or a dog, that's fine for humans to post-process and check. Yeah. But if you're relying on machine learning to do something a bit superhuman, Maybe make some prediction. Well, the whole point is that you as a human shouldn't really be overriding the model. And so there you you really want the gold standard model,
0: not Mm -hmm. a cheap approximation. It's funny, Tarun, I'm just thinking back to when we had Florian on and we talked about I was confused. I think I I listened to this recently, but I was confused about what the model means. ML in general for me is a really new space, so like I'm still getting familiar with the language at all. But yeah, in this case, so this is this is actually making me understand a little bit better what's happening when you're querying these models. Like the model is doing, it's running something new. It's not just like the whole thing is finished behind an API and it's just outputting what you ask for, right? Is it creating? a model as you ask that question somehow? It
1: kind of depends on what sort of systems you're using. Mm -hmm. Some models are really just, you can think of it as a function with some parameters. And so when we say that OpenAI trained a model, it just means they ran some, you know, very fancy computationally intense procedure to determine those parameters. And when you run the model on your input, you give it, let's say an image and it, it simply evaluates that function. So from the point of view of zero knowledge, you're just proving the correct execution
3: with maybe some hidden information of that function. Okay. Yeah, it might be actually worth trying to talk a little bit about some of the problems in the the deepfake paper if we kind of zoom out a little bit. So, you know, there have been a bunch of papers on identifying deepfakes or proving that you correctly generated an it's an authentic image versus like one generated But, you know, one of the problems, I guess, in like some of the earlier papers, uh, like if I remember correctly, like the Bonet paper and others was that they required the image to have public data to generate the proof. And so a lot of what you did was getting around that. So maybe let's, maybe we could walk through like how you dealt with this idea of like, hey, we want to generate the proof without revealing much of the initial input data. And, you know, the idea of like image transformations being able to be uh, performed in CK? Because I think, I think that part is like the most interesting part from the technical side is that people kind of assumed you would always have to be providing the input data and
2: yeah. So one problem for both um, attested image edits and also for machine learning is that you might want to hide some parts of the input. So for example, let's say I take a photo of my uh, of my desk or let's say I take a photo of the situation room for Um, when Obama was uh, overseeing the operations for the uh, Osama bin Laden, then you might want to hide or redact some of that information. And you also might want to edit the photo for clarity. But because some of this information is private, you don't want to reveal the original photo. But you still want to be able to say that these edits happen honestly from this original photo. One way to go about doing this, which is what we introduced in our paper, is to compute a commitment. um, In our particular case, it's a hash of the original uh, image if you assume that you have an attested sensor, you can verify that hash, the signed hash from the attested sensor, and then uh, only reveal the hash and the edited image at the end. And so this way you can actually preserve the privacy of the original image. And this general technique can also be used for machine learning as well. So all the work in the uh, ZKML space previously uh, doesn't actually commit to the weights. So they can prove that they ran some computation, mm. um, but because the weights, uh, these things we call weights, are the parameters of the function, are actually critical to what the output is, you don't actually get any guarantees that they ran the model that they said they ran. Mm. Uh, whereas in our work, we also introduced this for the ZKML space as well, where you can compute the, a commitment, in our, in our case, a hash of the weights and reveal that and because the, uh, the commitment is binding, it uh, forces the API provider to uh, hash the weights. Uh, then you can be assured that the, it ran the correct model.
0: You just mentioned something like an attested sensor. What is that, actually?
2: Yeah, so an attested sensor, uh, the most common form of this is an attested camera, is a hardware device that signs the sensor data, for example, pixels of an image, immediately upon capture. okay. And it signs it with a tamper-proof hardware device. So in particular, the private key is is kept hidden on the tamper-proof hardware device, and you destroy the the private key immediately after the camera is is produced.
0: After the picture is produced, you mean?
2: So you destroy the private key immediately after the camera is made. Oh, wow. So So the private key is only ever on this hardware device. Sorry, you mean you
3: destroy it on, on, on like, computer external. The hardware device still has it to sign with, right? I still need... Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, that's that, right. That's Sorry, why I was like, we, we still got to be able to, like, you know, multiply by the group <laughs> operation, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the way this works is that um, uh, a hardware vendor, like, say, a camera vendor, will uh, produce the private key and put it on the hardware device and then delete the private key from their computer. And so now this private key only exists on this uh, signing device. hmm And then furthermore, the signing device is protected by, essentially, um, if you try to change the voltage on it, it'll basically destroy the private key. Um, And so that's how you ensure security.
0: Interesting. So an attested sensor on a camera, a camera, it can be something else, I guess, anything that's taking, like, real-world input and turn it into something digital, and I guess that's always, yeah, because you, you have to be able to, like, you couldn't, you know, use this on any sort of analog photo. It has to somehow be in digital form to start running these mathematical things on it. That's interesting, though. I mean, you used the example of a photo, a camera, but are there other sensors that you've considered this for?
2: Yeah, so we chose camera specifically because um, you can purchase an attested camera today. Okay. Um, I think with the rise of uh, generative AI methods, so for example, uh, AI methods like stable diffusion um, and the recently announced um, audio and video models from Google, um, I think we should, it would be great if we moved to a world where basically every sensor was attested. So your mic, your, your camera, um, your, your, your webcam, um, hmm. and even your keyboard. Uh, that's the world that I want to to move towards. But um, currently, I believe that uh, tested cameras are the most common form of a tested sensor.
0: So like most devices would not have this feature, like most current digital recording devices, all of them aren't. Like, is there no way to somehow timestamp it or somehow prove that it came from that device at that time and that it's like accurate?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it depends quite a bit on basically the level of security that you want. So attested sensors um, are in some sense the most secure version of this because you need to have the actual, a hardware device to produce a signature. There are other forms of technology, for example, uh, enclaves, uh, which mm-hmm. can help with this problem. But there are some issues with getting basically the sensor data into the enclave securely. And depending on how much you trust the person who's taking the photo and also the basically the software systems of, say, your phone, then um, you can still uh, do some form of this uh, using enclaves and signing.
0: Mm. And this work that we're talking about, just to, for the listener, it's the ZKIMG, right? This is the fighting deepfakes. This is another work that the two of you collaborated on. Were there other people also involved in that work? Or was it just the two of you?
2: Uh, t- so, actually, the, the friend that uh, you mentioned, Tatsunori Hashimoto, was involved as well. Okay. Uh, and my postdoc advisor, uh, Johan Stoika, at Berkeley. Cool.
1: The reason all these attested sensors and cameras are especially relevant with the rise of generative AI is I think whether an image or a voice is authentic is now turning from a somewhat objective problem that you could use, for example, before maybe you could classify with a machine learning model, whether an image is real, like from an authentic camera, or generated by stable diffusion. Uh, but as these generative models get better and better, the way they actually work is by being trained to fool a classifier. Oh, wow! And so it's almost turning from an objective problem to a somewhat subjective problem that we need to use cryptography to encode you know, somewhat human level judgments about. And that's why to get a source of authentic input data for ZKML, it's kind of important to have uh, these attested inputs. And maybe just to bring us back to this adversarial examples discussion from a while back in the discussion, um, the challenge is basically if you're using a hidden input in any machine learning model where you, you generate a proof, well, that hidden input might be chosen adversarially And then you can make the output of your model uh, essentially be whatever you want. But because the input is hidden, the downstream user can't tell that you actually ran an adversarial attack. Hmm. And so that's a bit of a fundamental constraint for any application of ZKML.
0: In this particular example, though, you are kind of creating a way to keep the initial source private. Why does it need to be private? Like, why would the, like, with the attested sensor... I mean, you can always use the ZKP to prove provenance or something like that, or non-provenance. But yeah, why does it matter if the underlying one is private?
2: I think it depends quite a bit on the application. So for the applications that we've been talking about so far, it doesn't really matter that much.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, But I think with the rise of generative AI, one of the things that's going to become really important is basically uh, authenticated uh, biometrics.
0: So scary.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So so one of the ways that you can authenticate yourself today is you can basically send a photo of your face to some service, and then they'll classify you as real or not. Mm. And you might have actually used this on several applications. Um, So I think that uh, some social media applications ask this for verification. But if you do this, you're basically trusting the service to handle your information uh, correctly. So maybe I don't want to send a photo of my face to Twitter if I want to stay anonymous. Um, and having the pipeline from a tested sensor uh, to the ML model uh, could potentially allow privacy-preserving uh, biometric identification.
0: Mm. So you could almost use your, like, Anon PFP as your uh, <laughs> as your KYC face or something? <laughs> yeah,
2: that's a uh, future that I want to, to move towards. I want to be able to preserve privacy while uh, keeping all the grid parts of uh, biometric authentication. And that's one of the reasons that we worked on these two papers, which seem quite separate, but um, they're actually quite related.
1: Mm. Yeah, maybe you could prove that your anon anime character was the result of a generative algorithm run on your actual photo.
0: Ah, but no one knows what you really look like.
1: Yeah, you gotta hide
0: your identity. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I mean, it depends on how much. It depends on how much uh, you use a stable diffusion. Thing that keeps a lot of the original data, but that then it's your it's your choice, right? You've chosen the particular generative output that you you're willing to use,
1: and that's why we have to attest to the input. Otherwise, you could just put, you know, a celebrity's image as the input.
0: Mm, that's wild. It's funny. Like in in planning for this, I didn't actually think about the attested sensor, and now I'm sort of fascinated with the fact that that doesn't exist normally, and that we have to create the thing that makes it like tamper proof this is a true documentation of this moment in time by a sensor yeah
3: i mean you have to understand embedded systems historically like cameras and things that had small devices they, they, they generally because they're battery powered try to avoid any excess hardware surface area um, especially for things like TEs, which are horribly expensive like power wise mm-hmm. so i think like a iphone if you remove the te uh you can like 2x your battery life depending on how often you're signing. It's actually, like, one of the more... It's, like, like comparable to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. So a lot of these devices were built... You know, the people who are building them hardware-wise, their entire objective is not how secure is it. Theirs is, like, hey, we need the battery life to be 20 hours, or we need, like, to be able to take 5 million pictures at this resolution. It's not about privacy. You have to actually, like... Somehow get people of very different backgrounds to agree on that being like a necessary usage of resources, which is, you know, until you had so much stuff like that looks like deep fakes or generative pictures and, and stuff like that, people didn't really care to to add that into devices.
0: And I guess with just doing it with a private key, though, that's not as energy intensive, right? Like or is it still to create this uh, attested sensor? You have
3: to sign on every subset okay. of pixels. Yeah. It, it. It. But the point is, like, you have to deem that a value you want in your device and then ah. add it in. Yeah.
0: The actual private key creation and all of that, like that, is not novel cryptography, is it? it this is is this old cryptography that they've just started to add to these devices.
2: Yeah, it's it's old cryptography. Okay. Uh, very very tried and true.
0: Cool. Cool. Yeah. Daniel, maybe we can talk a little bit about the merging of these two works. You sort of just hinted at it, that there that there is a connection point. Yeah,
2: happy to talk about that. So I think that um, this entire pipeline of going from attested inputs from various sensors to feeding into inputs to machine learning uh, models and algorithms is actually going to be really powerful in the future. I think there's a lot of different kinds of applications. So we talked about one already, which is uh, biometric um, identification. And one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit is this problem of adversarial inputs when it comes to biometric identification. Uh, If you take a picture of your face and you like draw a box, for example, with um, something that will fool a machine learning model, as an auditor, uh, the service can take a look at this picture uh, later and say like, okay, well, they're clearly trying to fool us, so we should do something about this. But if you never reveal the the image, then they can't do this. Ah. I think one of the things that'll become really interesting is what happens when you combine different kinds of sensors. So we mentioned cameras, we mentioned uh, microphones. Uh, One of the the other kinds of sensors I want to mention are LiDAR devices or depth cameras. So if you imagine uh, your face ID on say an iPhone, it uses a depth camera to do the identification. And if you can combine that with, say, an image and also a clip of your voice, maybe that'll be much more secure and much more difficult to fool uh, than it would be th- uh, of just a plain image. So the, the service providers that are uh, want to authenticate you uh, will, will probably have much more trust if they can verify from a variety of different sensors. Mm. I think this is one uh, application that's going to be really exciting, but also there's going to be a lot of technical work for uh, for this to be enabled.
0: So this is the idea of kind of creating that trust that what's happening behind the API is still correct through ZKP, but also combining that with the fact that you can keep that initial image in one of these kind of like provenance proving, I, I don't know if you really call it provenance because it's like you're trying to prove that something's a deep fake or like you're, you're trying to prove that it's ac- the same. Would you call that provenance actually? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, province. Right? Okay. So it's, but keeping that original source private, that's the combination that you're talking about here. So one is proving that what's happening under the hood is accurate, and the other is pro- like keeping that data private. That's right. Interesting. I actually wonder how do those th- two things combine? Because one is like behind the API, how do you, are you sending, like what data would you have to send? Like, say it was actually that, like there's some big model like there's an API in front of it you are on the other side as a user you have the biometric data how are you getting it in there without revealing it
2: oh yeah that's right so I uh, I should have actually uh, mentioned we're working in a different setup for for biometric identification okay okay um we're actually in a setup where let's say I want to authenticate myself um mm-hmm. I as a user will actually run the machine learning model on my side oh I see and send the result Okay. But then here, the, let's say the social media website that wants to verify that I'm a real human being uh, wants to know that I ran the model honestly.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
2: But also do it in a privacy-preserving way. So it's actually flipped. In this situation, yeah, yeah. the the social media website doesn't trust um, the person who's sending the uh, biometric identification f- uh, f- from. So ZKPs are kind of interesting because they can enable um, both settings where basically a consumer might not provide, might not trust a API provider. And on the flip side, a social media uh, website might not trust some random you know, entity that claims they're an actual human being.
3: Yeah, the, the funny part about this is you you say social media, but the types of applications that have been the largest consumer of these like very weird like liveness KYC tests are actually like dating apps. I think they actually really? like they like force people oh. to do them now, like verified oh. whatever. And and there there like exist startups that like literally just pay people in like scale.ai style like in in the philippines to like you get on a call and you move your face around enough for them to like believe that it's <laughs> so this is a this is an alternative version of that oh i guess it's like anti-catfishing protection
2: <laughs> i have heard that there's been a lot of scams on dating apps uh, recently so uh, hopefully the, in the future um, you won't have to uh, move your head around to prove that you're a real human being you can use these attested sensors and uh, zero-knowledge proofs? I mean, nothing
1: like zero-knowledge proofs to set the
2: romantic mood.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This Valentine's Day, buy your loved one an attested sensor. (laughs) (laughs) And a tested
1: PFP, of course. (laughs) I, I do think the fact that sometimes you have to do these proofs on your phone really points to the need for efficiency for the proof generation. Because obviously your phone has all these you know, battery requirements and probably the memory and CPU are not running as fast as some sort of cloud server. And so, with this and also a lot of the cloud applications, we found performance to be a really big limiting factor in what's viable versus what's not.
0: In that example that you walked through, Daniel, where you'd have the sort of the model on your own side does that already happen is that something that can already happen or is that like still in a theoretical stage i guess
2: one way to say it is that uh, it can hypothetically happen as in like (laughs) you could actually run this today um you just need an extremely powerful computer that you can hook up your mobile phone to okay
0: okay, so (laughs) doable but unlikely to be done
2: Yeah, and a big (laughs) part of my upcoming research is to basically bring down these costs. Um, uh, There's a bunch of different techniques coming from computer systems to cryptography to ML, where I think we can actually bring down the cost by maybe three to five orders of magnitude and can actually be executable on your mobile phone.
0: Is there not another kind of ZKML combination, which is using the properties of like compression uh, to make that? Maybe it's not ZK specifically, but like, is that one of the techniques?
2: Yeah, yeah, that is one of the techniques we're actively exploring.
0: Wow, that's cool. Let's see, how would that work then? You'd be using the ZKP to sort of like make the computational need of the model smaller or more compact, and then also using a ZKP to prove its accuracy or something like that.
2: Yeah, um, if you want to get into the technical details, one of the ways that you can go about doing this is to basically uh, split the computation of, for example, the, the, ed- the image edit and the ML model into separate proofs, mm-hmm. uh, and then combine them using uh, recursion or proof aggregation or w- whatever you want to call it.
0: Oh, cool.
1: This ties into a pretty generic technique in ZK, where if you want to do something hidden, um, it, suppose you want to do a big computation, and part of it involves hidden information but maybe doing the zero knowledge proof on the user side for the whole computation is computationally infeasible. What you can try to do is to generate, isolate a part of the computation that has hidden information, do it on the user's laptop browser or maybe their phone, and then feed the rest into a big cloud server where you don't really care as much about computational load. Mm. And so getting that interface right is pretty challenging. And I think it's a pretty active area both academic and empirical work.
3: Yeah, actually, one one sort of question that I guess from your paper I had is like, the generic technique is like, you commit to a hash and, and you can val- validate that the hash is correct and that the hash was produced by the same thing that like some sequence of transforms were were put on as a like alternative to actually having to be like fully homomorphic or, or have like stronger properties. One question I have is like, how much does that impact the sets of transformations you can do so like in your paper you you did benchmark a bunch of different transformations at least for images but let's say i took a more generic view of this let's say i just said like you can do any linear algebra operation uh, and compose it like is there is there some sort of like limitation performance wise in terms of like how much you can compose with with these and generate these kind of like aggregations versus this kind of like commit hash plus sequence of transformations does that kind of make sense like there's, it does seem like there's some trade-off surface here and i'm just kind of understand kind of what it is
1: yeah it's definitely pretty generic like when you do the computation in tk it's almost divided into exactly the two pieces you mentioned so you have some hidden information that's committed to and the first step is always to decommit that information for example if it's a hash you prove that you know the original image which was the pre-image of that hash Then you apply a bunch of operations in ZK, which actually have full knowledge of what the image is. And then at the end, you can hash that, the output, uh, to get a commitment to the output. So what happens in the middle is actually very decoupled from uh, the original image commitment, which is used to preserve privacy. Mm. And one thing that might not be obvious is, in ZK, the performance hit from hashing is significant. So if you're running something on your laptop, you don't really consider hashing to have any performance impact, uh, whereas in zk, you know, there are even the custom tailored hashes for zk take a substantial amount of the uh,
3: proving time.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, and concretely for images, it can be like twenty times more expensive than the actual transformation itself.
3: Okay, cool. Yeah, and I guess the question I have then maybe is like, let's suppose I take a language model which has sort of some notion of like loops and recurrences in in the architectures does unrolling those change kind of like if i were to do the same kind of transformation of like hash the initial input and then give you the sequence of transformations what's sort of the difference performance-wise and how should like someone think about like you know if you were to try to do the same thing for gpt3 what are kind of the obstacles or could it actually just work directly
2: um the one of the problems with large machine learning models is uh well, there's two problems. One is that the weights are very large. So for example, the, the weights of GPT-3, a, there's 175 billion of them. Um, and computing commitment to that is very, very expensive. The other problem is that there's actually a lot of computation that happens internally within the model. And representing that within ZK is also very expensive. One of the details that I can go into is that basically, like, there's uh, unfortunately two types of computations that happen in uh, the machine learning models. These linear algebra uh, um, operations, and then these things called nonlinearities. The basic problem is that the proof systems that are really good for matrix multiplications aren't good at nonlinearities, and vice versa. So this is actually a really big challenge when it comes to uh, doing uh, zkML, and it's also one of the things we're actively exploring on how to mitigate in terms of the performance implications of that.
3: Actually, maybe a very stupid, naive question, but you know, in the same way that I guess you know, if we go back to 2016 or 2015, like the idea of switching kind of like the smooth nonlinear functions, like a sigmoidal activation with like a softmax or just max type of, you know, reload type of thing. Do you think that there's going to be some like tailored nonlinearity for generating ZK proofs that actually ends up being like adapted to the proof system? Like it's like some piecewise linear thing that's like easy to use. So like maybe it, it doesn't get the same performance, but it can, it's like you're like trading off like proving time versus model accuracy. And like you end up, changing the architecture to do that there's some challenge to doing that Uh, the reason is that in to generate a zero knowledge proof
1: you have to somehow transform your computation to one where every variable is an integer modulo a very large cryptographically chosen prime but the core problem is that doing arithmetic say addition or multiplication over that prime field is not really close to a differentiable operation And the core premise of machine learning, or at least deep learning, is that your model should be differentiable or at least a discrete approximation to a differentiable model. So although different nonlinearities could have somewhat different costs to implement in ZK, you're always gonna have to pay to somehow reconcile this fundamentally non-differentiable prime field object with, um, in deep learning land, something you're fundamentally using to discretize a
3: real analytic... That's true, but then then I always think about the fact that, like, NVIDIA moved everything to 8-bit, and, you know, like, it's not really as smooth as you think it is, as, you know, like, the... the- I, and you could argue that the 1980s theory of neural nets got everything wrong because it assumed you had to be extremely smooth everywhere, and, like, Cybenko theorem only works in, like, certain limits, right? Whatever. But there's some sense in which, like, maybe there's some... There's like some extra room, wiggle room there. That's, I guess, that's sort of maybe my my question is like, do you think that there is that wiggle room where like you custom design architectures to be proof friendly or to like have sort of certain properties?
2: I think there's there's actually two answers to this. Actually, but going specifically to your NVIDIA point, um, as it turns out, the weights are often stored in int8, but the or uh, say uh, their floating point eight uh, version. But the activations are often uh, basically blown up to higher precision uh, in the intermediate step, especially for the non-linearities. For example, if you're doing softmax, there's been a lot of work that has been, been shown that the softmax is very uh, numerically unstable. So you need the higher precision in the intermediates. I actually do think that there are potentially ways to basically bridge the gap of like differentiable uh, ML and also ZKP. But one of the challenges is that if you want to deploy this, you're going to have to uh, convince practitioners to use a different non-linearity. And machine learning is somewhat of a, like, kind of black magic. And convincing people to use, like, a different uh, non-linearity that hasn't been tested over the course of, like, 10 years is going to be a real challenge. There's basically, like, five or six that people use, and making them switch is, is going to be quite challenging.
1: On the bright side, though, I would say some of these quantization techniques are already the focus of a lot of work for people doing machine learning on edge devices, basically to save power on your cell phone. And it turns out that very roughly speaking, the difficulty of implementing inference in ZK can be proxied in some way by how much battery power a model actually takes. So people have been working on quantizing these models and reducing the compute, and we can actually leverage a lot of that work to pick the best model to put in ZK.
0: I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about the, I know you have new work and you sort of mentioned like at this point to actually run these things locally would be kind of impossible, but the other two works, are there tools that exist today that can actually do that? Or are those also theoretical? Like given the tooling that exists, yeah. Could we, for example, prove that like a larger service is actually querying the model correctly behind an API?
2: So we can do that for certain kinds of models. Um, the models that we can do this on today uh, are models that people actually use in practice, but they're not, for example, GPT three. Um, and we're actively working to bridge that gap as well. Uh, so, for example, for small classification models, we can we can just run this today, and that's one, uh, what we showed in our on our initial paper in ZKML.
0: And what kind of tools do you use though, in terms of like the ZK tools? Like, are they the tools that we? you know, know well on this show? Like, is it the CIRCOMs and the Halos or is it something else?
2: Yeah, so the proving system that we used was, the, the proving uh, stack that we used was the Halo 2 uh, proving stack. Cool. Um, it supports lookup tables, which are really helpful for the nonlinearities that we discussed um, a few minutes ago. One
1: thing that we realized is that these generic proving tools that weren't really designed with uh, machine learning or neural networks in mind actually have reached a point where you can kind of adapt them and actually get to some scale uh, for neural networks. So a lot of prior work in ZKML would often handcraft a proof system for matrix multiplication or other basic operations. And obviously that gives you a huge advantage, Uh, but what we realized is that using something actually put into production for engineering, like Halo 2, uh, it gives you access to better tooling and sort of real world implementations Um, that, you know, the zkVM teams and other ZK teams are trying to run for performance. And somehow, empirically, we found that that makes up for the trade-off. So to add a bit of context to what Daniel said on the image classification, we were able to scale things up to a model that can handle a data set called ImageNet. So this is probably the most cited data set in all of machine learning. And it's essentially 224 by 224 size images of different real-world objects. And for context, all prior work was dealing with models that worked on much smaller images, uh, things like a dataset called CIFAR-10, which is 32 by 32. So although 224 by 224 is still not where we really want to be, um, it's a significant step up in scale that really was enabled by these more mature engineering for Halo 2. Mm.
3: You know, you, you brought up this, this point about Inst- instead of actually evaluating a function, you just like store pre-computed lookup values and nearest neighbor. It sounds like you're basically doing like round to nearest neighbor and then look up a function value. How long do you think it'll take for like a DSL, like a CIRCOM to actually have those features? Like you write a nonlinear function, but it converts it to polynomial, you know, like rational approximation or something. Like, you know, like if you look at a lot of math libraries in the rest of numerical computation there's a ton of stuff that's like hidden from the end user which like does all this type of stuff like does some of the pre-computation does some of these like polynomial approximation type of things do you think we'll get to a world where like the machine learning applications drive the library composition behavior you know like kind of like you had with pytorch and tensorflow or do you do you think that it's too still too abstract from that
1: that's actually something we're thinking about at Axiom, we're targeting the on-chain user. And there, you know, although maybe we could offer neural networks, really people, what people want is you know math functions like exponentiation or, or squaring. And we're trying to write uh, exactly fixed point mathematical libraries to do this sort of thing. And I think it's still a ways away from a point where the ordinary smart contract developer is gonna write you know x times y, and then other under the hood it does some crazy quadrature thing to develop a lookup table for that. Uh, but I think in maybe one to two years, we will reach that point.
2: Yeah, and for ML specifically, um, I'm actually working on open sourcing the the library that we built uh, for basically taking models in uh, TensorFlow and uh, turning them into certain knowledge proofs. And we have some of the work that you, or basically some of the techniques that you described um, in this library.
3: Mm. The reason I ask this is like, when you think about how programming languages evolve, Sometimes it's, like, the first applications that are built around a programming language dictate, like, everything that's in it. Like, in Solidity, right? Like, why are address maps, like, the primary data structure? Well, it was, like, that just happened to be, like, like, that's a historical vestige of, like, the first applications being tokens in some ways. That, like, that gets all the special priority in the compiler and stuff like that. And so I'm just kind of curious, like, when you think about the... The reason I was asking this was more like, hey, if, if ZK is moving in a particular future, which application dictates like how the languages get developed? And it sounds like to some extent it's it, it might be these math functions first rather than like other data structures that people use.
1: Yeah, definitely Circom is heavily influenced because it was developed to write the Hermes ZK rollup. Mm. And you can even tell by the functions in Circom lib. There's a lot of very specific elliptic curve verification a lot of very specific indexing into arrays. And there's definitely no math. You you can add some numbers, multiply some numbers, and and that's it. I, I think with the newer proof systems like Halo 2, the user base is a bit more diverse. And so we're now seeing many different groups develop libraries on top of Halo 2 for their specific application. And I think it's exciting to see the proof system be flexible enough to really handle all of these.
0: It does make me think that there might be a, like coming down the pipeline, some sort of Halo 2 equivalent that is maybe built more with this more in mind. Interesting. I mean, there's there's Plonky 2, but I don't know if that is more suited for that or less.
1: <laughs> I would say at the proof system level, Plonky 2 and Halo 2 are pretty close in adaptation to machine learning. Um, but there, are, I think these proof systems that are more tailor-made to operations like matrix multiplication are going to make a resurgence. Now that I think there's a bit of production interest in machine learning, mm. um, there's more of an incentive to develop the tooling around those systems and maybe make a more fair comparison between them and you know Planck-based systems like Halo 2 or Planck 2 You definitely don't want to be winning just on engineering.
0: Are you thinking about stuff like Spartan? Because I think that's only MSM now, right?
1: Yeah, stuff like Spartan, as well as some of these more sumcheck check related uh, systems that uh, actually have matrix mole as a, a primitive operation. Um, obviously, those, that's not generically useful unless you really want to do some sort of you know, machine learning or numerical type algorithm.
0: Cool. So, what else do we see kind of in the future of ZK or ZKML? What else are you guys thinking about?
1: Yeah, so at Axiom, we're talking with a lot of smart contract application teams about their on-chain needs. And so one obstacle to actually deploying something like a big neural network on-chain is that if you want to prove that you correctly did inference on an image, you have to be able to access that image on-chain. And if you've written any Solidity before, you know that accessing Ethereum state is the most expensive operation of all on-chain. And so we think the models that are gonna make sense on-chain going forward are much simpler ones. Perhaps not at the scale of ImageNet, but much closer to things like linear regression or just traditional uh, ML, things like page rank algorithms or PCA. And so the space is still pretty early for that. I think developers haven't really realized that's even possible, um, but we're pretty excited to explore what people come up with.
0: What what era, like if you were to look back in history of ML, what year are we at on, on the blockchain or in ZKML? Is it like 1986 or something? What is it?
1: Uh, maybe better than that. Maybe uh, 2001. Ooh. There's a standard book, you know, Elements of Statistical Learning, that prior to deep learning was the canonical reference for what you would learn if you wanted to do applied machine learning. and I think actually most of those algorithms, uh, many of those algorithms can be applied on chain today, with the scale of data that is available. Cool. And so we just need developers to actually want to put them into their applications. We don't
3: have the hasty book yet, though. For for this, <laughs> I, like we still we still kind of need that book and then the online course that maps to it. I don't think the Berkeley ones come anywhere close to how much the. At the influence of like that kind of Trevor Hastie and Tibshirani book had. Yeah, I mean, it's still early days, you know, to even implement the uh, logarithm
1: or exponential on chain is a tough task these days. And to do it in ZK is also pretty challenging. So we have a long ways to go before we're all doing, you know, logistic regression.
3: Maybe it might be good to kind of conclude by talking about other applications, maybe outside of just purely Kind of some of the work you've done so far, and sort of imagine what happens if we zip forward to 2012 in ML when you know sort of ImageNet got was created. <laughs> we 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 kind of reached that nexus. What does what, what does the world look like? What are the applications that exist?
2: Yeah, I think if you look at the history of ML, 2012 was sort of a seismic shift. So it's really mm. difficult to guess what will happen next. But I do think that um, there's some crazy things that you could imagine. So one thing that I've just been thinking about toying around with is that you might imagine taking this idea of biometric identification and literally just putting it on chain. Um, What you can do is you can basically put a hash of, um, say, uh, some information about your face so that people can identify it, and then use that to authenticate a smart contract if you have some really sensitive operation that you want to do. But beyond that, I think there's also a bunch of interesting applications. So for example, you might want to have a data marketplace where you sell uh, private data to different uh, customers. But if you wanna prove how valuable this data is, uh, today you need to show them the data, which sort of defeats the purpose of selling the data. They can just take it and run. Uh, And similarly, I think you can also do things like prompt engineering marketplaces. So if you have some really cool prompt for Stable Diffusion, you can prove that you've ran Stable Diffusion on that prompt and then uh, do something with that as well. We're very, very early days, so the applications are just, these are just things I've been toying around with, and surely plenty of uh, other ones. I'm really excited to see what people come up with.
0: Cool. All right. I want to say a big thank you then to both of you for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing with us sort of your histories and also all the work you've been doing on ZKML and what might be coming up in the future.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us on.
0: I want to say thank you to the ZK team, Henrik, Rachel, Adam, and Tanya, and to our listeners, thanks for listening.